So pretty much since uh, the dawn of human history, people have been doing rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, so they can get on the good side of their God or spirit, whatever it is they, they worship. And it, it's, it may seem strange, but people would sacrifice just about anything they could get their hands on to, these, to God's crops, food, their animals, human beings even, their own children. They was, and the Old Testament actually records this horrifying reality, people sacrificing to their god Moloch. Um, and this is from a science article uh, titled Feeding the Gods. And I, I was looking at this last night. It's very dark. It's kind of like death metal, very dark. Hundreds of skulls, this is what it says, hundreds of skulls reveal a massive scale of human sacrifice in the Aztec capital. Definitely a bit dark, right? And I mean, I, they showed like pictures of these skulls and they were like all lined up. I mean, it was very kind of intense to see that and, and very sad to see all those lives lost to this false religion. But it says, human sacrifice occupied a particularly important place in Mesoamerica. Many of the region's cultures believed that human sacrifice nourished gods. Without it, the sun would cease to rise and the world would, would end and sacrificial victims earn a special and honored place in the afterlife. And like, wow, I was not expecting the sermon to start that way. <laughs> a little dark. But, I mean, it's true. People, people do ceremonies and rituals, even extreme ones like this, certain chantings people do to finally get God to be good with them, to accept them so that they can get married to the right person, get a lot of crops, have children, and the sun could keep on shining on them, that people really sacrifice a lot. And it's not just in Mesoamerica, but it's all over the world for centuries, had this belief that if you do a mechanical ritualistic process of ceremonies, then God would favor you so you can just kind of go on your merry way and live your life happily ever after. And you see, on these views, there is no deep and authentic relationship with God because the, the, the emphasis is on a transaction and a ceremony with the divine, not the quality of the relationship itself. Now, you might think, oh, come on, Nate, this is so outdated and such a barbaric way of thinking for us modern Western people in society, but it's far from true. I mean, did you know, for instance, that there is still pagan ritualistic child sacrifice that goes on in Uganda? Still goes on to this day. They do it to placate the spirits with the witch doctors and everything. And when I went to college, I wasn't Hindu, but I went to a Hindu service and they actually had vegetables and fruits that they had sacrificed to their statues of gods. So you see, mechanical rituals and transactional relationships with the divine is very much a part of our society even today. We have not moved past it as all as human beings. Like, okay, Nate, well, yeah, those are referring to different religions. We as Christians, we would never fall into this kind of ritualistic superstition, you know, kind of traps like these. Well... I hate to say it, but more people than we'd like to admit today, they'll see a televangelist say, hey, you know, if you give me all your money, God's going to give you more money back, all this money back. If you just give me, you know, $1,000, God's going to put that tenfold, which is funny. Those televangelists themselves never donate to the ministries to do that. They, they're, they're free from that kind of thing. But, it, it's, but yeah, people, people think, okay, I give money, a lot of money to the church, I'm going to get more back, this sort of transactional way of thinking. 
People think, okay, if I go to church and I, and I give money, I'm baptized, I'll maybe I'll go to church on Christmas and Easter and I'll give a little extra, you know, then I'll be good with God. I'm going to get to heaven. I'm good to go. And I have met pastors who have told me to my face that if, they, if you walk down an aisle and you pray a prayer using certain words that you can live your entire, you'll be saved and you can live your entire life without any reference to God, a completely godless life, rejecting God in your life because you prayed a prayer with certain magical words when you were five years old. So you're good to go. You, you made the, the magic incantation so you're good to go. You can kind of live your life without any reference to God. And this is, this is so very popular, this kind of mechanical, ritualistic way of thinking that a very popular, well-liked evangelical pastor has fallen into this trap of ceremonialism and ritualism. He writes, a Christian, in one sense, is anyone who has been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by an authorized representative of the Christian church. So he's saying the act of baptism itself makes you a Christian and I want to say that baptism doesn't make you a Christian any more than a wedding ring makes you married. But you see, that's the fallen side of human beings. We want this kind of transactional, mechanical relationship rather than something deeper and more authentic with God. Like, okay, hey, God, I'm going to do something to make you like me. I'm going to do some good things for you. And then you're going to be nice to me. And then maybe we can kind of keep our distance here a little bit, God, you know? So God turns out like a Coke machine. You know, you put a few quarters in, you get your, your, your Coke. Well, now you feel like you have to use your credit card. It's, you have your credit card scan it. Now they have that, you know? I'm dating myself here. But, you know, you, you have this mechanical transaction. You get your Coke and, you know, you're done, you know. You're, you're good to go. You wash your hands of it and, and you're going to book it. God's like a genie in the bottle. You rub it the right way and the genie comes out. You get three wishes and you're, you're not going to, there's no more relationship with the genie. Unless, of course, it's a lad and it's a different story. Now, of course, you know, it's like God's like a mafioso, right? You know, he's like, you know, if you give me some money, I'll take care of you, you know. You pay, pay, pay the money. He's going to protect your property. You know, bad guys come up. He's going to rough them up a little bit, you know. So, you know, you're not going to want to have a deep relationship, intimate, deep relationship with, with, uh, with uh, Vito Corleone or anything like that. So, you know, there's this distance here. You, you kind of make a transaction, keep your distance, kind of keep God out of your life as Lord of your life. And so what God wants, though, is not this transaction. He wants a deep trust and a relationship with them. That is the heart of the Christian message. In this way, Christianity is less like a ritualistic religion and more like a relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. I bring this up because the Jews in the first century did not view things this way. They viewed it in this mechanical, ritualistic way. If you do certain ceremonies, you're good to go. And so here in Romans 4, 9 through 10, we're going to see kind of Paul dealing with this. Verse 9, let's be do our verse by verse study. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the blessing of all of your sins forgiven, the blessing of justification of righteousness apart from works of law, this blessing of salvation of eternal life? Is, is that this blessing then only for the circumcised, a Jew, or for the uncircumcised, which includes the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So Paul is, is showing the legalistic Jewish people of his day, the first century, that Abraham was saved 
prior to him being circumcised. He has to do this because in the first century Jewish thought, they thought, you know, you get circumcised, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, you're saved. You're good to go. You're getting into heaven. That's your ticket into circumcision. And here are some examples of this by some, some rabbis and some Jewish writings, early Jewish writings. One of the esteemed rabbis wrote, a rabbis have said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. You're circumcised, you're good to go. Another rabbi taught, circumcision saves from hell. In the Midrash, it says, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should ever be sent to hell. In the Akedath uh, Jizhak says, Abraham sits before the gates of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite to enter there. So in, you're like, oh, that's just Jewish writings. Nate, that has no connection to what was going on in the Bible. Yeah, it was. Jerusalem Council, this is what the, the first century Christian Jews were saying, Acts 15, 1, if you look at this. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Cannot be saved. Now, the Council of Jerusalem thankfully overturned this, this, this thought process and said, no, you, you can be saved. You're saved by grace and faith alone. And so he's showing here an example. Hey, yeah, Abraham, your man guy, guess what? He was saved before he was circumcised. Going on to verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circum uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of, of, of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before, prior to him being circumcised. He was prior to that. The point is here is that the promise in Genesis is, okay, Abraham's going to be, he's going to have many nations. He's going to be the father of many nations, not just the Jewish nation, but to many, the Gentiles and to Jews alike. And in order for him to be consistently the father he, of all nations, he had to be saved before he was circumcised so he can represent salvation by grace and faith alone without any signs to the Jews and to the Gentiles. That's why he's a father of all nations. He can be both for both groups of people, Jew and Gentile. Now, it says Abraham's circumcision, if you look at the words, is, is a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. And that means, just to unpack that word of sign, is that the circumcision was actually a visible sign of the righteousness and is also a seal. And here, a seal functions as something that, kind, that well, it confirms something going on. It confirms a reality. Um, so circumcision confirms his faith is a sign of his faith. Uh, you're like, that's kind of weird. Well, we kind of have something going on with wedding rings. This is, by the way, in, I'm going to do a lot of wedding illustrations. In two more days, it's me and Laura's eight-year anniversary. So if there's a lot of wedding and marriage illustrations of the sermon, I had it on my mind a little bit. Um, so my, my wedding ring is, is a sign that I'm married it represents my marriage, but it also confirms my marriage. And the, by the way, this has never happened. But, you know, you see stories, you watch maybe um, 
a cheesy uh, Lifetime movie during Christmas, whatever. You, you, you see movies, you hear about this happening. But, you know, you, there's a woman hitting on a, a guy, a married guy, in a supermarket or at a restaurant. And then this woman asks this man out for a date, and he holds up his hand and says, Ah, I'm married. And so in that way, the ring functions as a sign and kind of this confirmation the person is married. It confirms and it represents the marriage. And that's, and that's a little bit how circumcision was. It, it worked that way in the Old Testament. Circumcision confirmed and it represented one's faith in the Old Testament. And the very interesting thing, and this is, a, this is something that's kind of confused people when I go over this, but this, this sign and seal of circumcision was given to infants. All the male infants in Israel were to be circumcised. And people ask, well, Okay, Nate, how is this supposed to happen? Like, these, these infants can't believe, and yet they're receiving the sign and seal of righteousness of faith. This is a sign of the righteousness of faith, and this is being applied to infant boys. Like, how can this be? And people have struggled with this, and we have to realize when the Bible uses this sign and seal language, it's using a special kind of like we call sacramental language. There is a sign, circumcision, Right? In this case, my sign is my wedding ring. And it signifies something. It points to something. In the case of circumcision, it points to the righteousness but that is had by faith. My, now, my wedding ring is a sign that points to the fact that I'm, I'm married. And so people can have signs that, of realities that haven't occurred yet. So, for example, an engagement ring points to a future reality, doesn't it? That you're going to get married. You're not married yet. It hasn't happened yet. But it points to that. And there's something similar going on here with circumcision. It kind of functions as a, I don't know how to put it, but a child's engagement ring to, to follow Christ. And so you can have a sign of something before that reality of faith even takes place. And this is how it's used. Signs and seals are used this way throughout the Bible. And the timing is slightly off on this. That meaning that it doesn't happen the same. The sign doesn't happen the same time as reality. A good example of this that has confused people greatly is the animal sacrifices. Um, in Leviticus 4.20, you're going to see this, how it talks about the animal sacrifices forgiving and atoning sin. Look at the language here. Verse 20. Thus shall he do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering. So shall he do with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for them, making an atonement, and they shall be forgiven. So animal sacrifices, atonement, and it forgives. It's, it's what it, when you read it that way, it actually appears like people have had this idea, and it's not true. We'll see in a bit have had this idea when the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were being done. That's how people were saved. That's how their sins got forgiven is by sacrificing these animals. So when you do it, you know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, you do this ceremony, you do this transaction, and voila, sin's forgiven. Well, we know from the book of Hebrews that this isn't true. This is not true at all. Look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 4 through 6. It's very clear when it says this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They could never forgive sin. They could never take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came to the world, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. It's not ceremonies that gets their sins forgiven. Now, obviously, the ceremonies represented the forgiveness in Christ. It represented that their sins were, were forgiven, but it didn't make their sins forgiven. It was a sign, it, a sign that pointed to 
that's pointed to the fact that Christ forgave all their sins. He was going to die for all their sins so that they were presently not under God's punishment, wrath. They had all their sins forgiven. And so, yeah, they, they didn't actually do any. And you know what's crazy is that as, as these animal sacrifices were being done, their sins were already forgiven. So the, the sign doesn't line up to the actual moment at which they believed and had faith and their sins were forgiven. So the timing is off here, much like with an engagement ring or imagine if somebody had like an arranged marriage. And I don't know, they had like a symbol on to like, I don't know, maybe like they had a mark or a tattoo that they were gonna get an arranged marriage. Um, I was reading that 70% of people that in cultures where they have arranged marriages, 70% prefer arranged marriages. Seems so bizarre to us in the West. But yeah, I mean, there are things that symbolize future realities. And so that's why, the connecting the dots here, that's why circumcision was applied to infants, even though it was a sign of, of the righteousness of faith, because it was, it was kind of looking forward to something and, and ho- in hope of something. And that is that people who, who trusted in Christ, they would, in the Old Testament, they would raise and disciple their children, and they would trust in God to their children that as they are discipling and raising their children, as they're teaching their children the law of God, that they too would adopt that relationship with God. They too would want to follow and serve God. And I would say that's how it is today too, in many ways, that we, we treat our kids as, as Christians. I, I don't, you know, when Abigail and Kenny says they love Jesus and they believe in Jesus, I don't be like, you're a liar. You know that? You're full of lies and deceits. I say, oh, great, you love Jesus. You believe in Jesus, that's terrific. So I assume my kids to be Christian unless and until I, res- I get evidence to the contrary, namely they're rejecting Christ and they're not following you know, in the way of Christ. So in the same way, the Old Testament would assume that their kids were part of Israel. They would give them the law of God, treat them as such, and they would trust in God's promises to work through families. This is what it says in Psalm 103, um, 17, it says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. So God works through families, through generations that, that teach their kids. Now, I know it's pretty obvious that not everybody who is raised Christian becomes a Christian. I, I know of many examples of people rebelling uh, from, from their Christian faith. But that's not to say that that's not the normal and regular way that God works through families. He usually works through the, the Christian families, and in this case, in the Old Testament, uh, Jewish families to, to propagate the faith in people that have a relationship with Christ. Here's the point. Circumcision never saved anybody at all. It never saved a baby. It was applied to them as kind of this way that God works in families to bless uh, their children's children in the general way God works through discipleship. And Abraham's circumcision didn't save him either at all. Paul has been pointing that out. He was saved before he was circumcised. And you see, people say, okay, well, what does this have to do with today? You know, we don't have an issue with, you know, Jewish legalists in the first century. You know, that's all completely removed to us today. We don't understand any of this today. Well, it has great significance today because the problem today is this relates to baptism and how it's treated in the Christian church. So often when I ask someone if they are a Christian, they're going to tell me one of two things. They're going to tell me either that they go to church, kind of, or that they were baptized. And that's the evidence. Oh, I I was baptized as an infant or I was baptized when I was 16 years old. So I know I'm, I'm good to go. Thumbs up. And so, yeah, they think this ritual of baptism, this 
ceremony is, is kind of what means that they, they are good to go. But they're relying on this ritual rather than a true and saving, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me be the first to say that baptism is no replacement for a personal relationship and saving relationship with Jesus. And now, I'm not saying, oh, people, oh, baptism is worthless. Just get rid of it. No, it's commanded by God that we should baptize people. God commands it. If you trust in Christ, you should be baptized. But if you had to choose between trusting in Jesus and having a relationship with him or being baptized, go with Jesus every time. Because that baptism, apart from trusting in Christ, means nothing. And I need to, sh- to stress this because many self-proclaimed Christians have tell me that you have to be baptized to be saved. You, you to be saved, you have to be baptized. Well, it doesn't save you any more than circumcision saves you. And people say, well, you know, but baptism and circumcision, those things are just completely different. You're talking about apples and oranges, Nate. There's, that's not a fair comparison at all. The problem is, though, that the Apostle Paul teaches us that baptism replaces circumcision. And this is done and granted by the majority of commentators in Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is a spiritual circumcision. That's the made without out hands expression. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, by what Jesus has done for you, you receive this spiritual circumcision. How do you receive it? Having been buried with him in baptism. You have it in virtue of this baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in a powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism replaces circumcision. They serve the exact same function. They both represent faith in the Messiah, faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls, for the forgiveness of all their sins. And so And so just like the sign of circumcision never saved anybody, so too the sign of baptism never saved anybody. Baptism is not saving, but by faith alone in Jesus. I remember I was preaching through the uh, Gospel of John, and this was, I don't know, how long has it been? Like two years? Something like that. Maybe less than two years, I think. A year. And we had a person come and visit us for, I mean, it was a long time this guy visited, over two years of visiting. And I guess at that point, are you really a visitor if you visit, visit for two years? Probably not. Um, I, yeah, whatever. He was a guy that was here. There we go. And he, he come from a, a, a background where basically it said that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized and you have to have faith. Now, when I went through the Gospel of John, you go through John and it says, you believe, you know, God's love the world, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And you talk about, believe in me and you have eternal life. He's like, you know, you're going through John right now. And I was raised all my life to believe that baptism, you know, I need to be saved to be baptized. But as you're going through John, I mean, this is really emphasizing this beliefs of trusting in Jesus to be saved. He's like, I don't know if I believe that anymore. So it's amazing what the word of God can do to uh, change somebody's life, show them that that's the true instrument of salvation is trusting and knowing Christ. And uh, one of the examples that we're fond of, of giving here of people being saved without baptism is, of course, that, that thief on the cross. We've used that as an illustration here all the time because it's a good example because that thief was on the cross. He w- wasn't baptized. And he's, he's, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. 
which in Greek means heaven. That's what the word paradise means. And so he wasn't baptized on the cross and, and Jesus says you'll be with him that day. So yeah, he was saved without baptism. It was interesting when I was a pastor in um, South Carolina and Abigail was like, I think she was one, maybe. I, I can't remember. She was, she was very, you know, very, very new to the world. Let's just say that. And I remember I was, you know, we were kind of in eh, the apartment complex. We were in a little bit shady, not going to lie. And so we get this, this knock on the door at like eight o'clock at night. Just, and I, I look through there and you're going to really like doubt my like judgment here. <laughs> I, I open the door and it's like two very big men like standing in front of me. Like, I don't know why I looked in and said, oh, there's two large men at eight o'clock at night in a bad part of South Carolina. Open the door, you know, bad idea, you know. I mean, and these guys were big. This guy had like meat hook hands, like these are the hands of a working man, you know. You know, big, you know, it was like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, get to the chopper, you know, Dylan, you know, big muscles, muscle bound men, older men, huge construction working hands. And so I was like, well, gentlemen, what do I owe the visit? <laughs> Are you here to mug me? Still my wallet, maybe. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they were, they were from a church. You know, usually you expect someone different than two very large. I bet you nobody else in that apartment complex opened the door. I was the only guy who did it. Let's just be honest about that. Meat hook hands. So I'm like, hey, yeah, we're a part of this church, and you know, you know, your the church you preach at is false. Such a sweet conversation with large hand men, that, you know, telling me this. Your church is false, and you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Um, and so I was like, oh, interesting. So I'm just curious, like, how do you guys understand like the thief on the cross? Like, did he get baptized? Like, you know, he today he'll be in paradise. I mean, not much time for baptism, right there, is it? And like, oh no, yeah, no, totally. Totally baptized. I'm like, really? He was baptized, you think? Wait, don't you guys hold to like baptism by immersion, meaning your whole entire body has to be underwater? You got a pinky up? We got to do it again. Like, don't you guys hold that? Like, well, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. I'm like, so how did they, I'm just curious, because how did they baptize him full immersion when he's hanging on a cross? He's dying. He died of crucifixion. Pretty much everybody did, unless you're Jesus, right? Rise again. So they're like, oh, and they, you know, they do what every cheap politician does is they change the subject, right? What else can you do? And I'm like, wait, no, wait a minute. You're not, you're not getting, hold up, wait a minute. You are not getting off of this. So tell me, how did he get, and then like finally like, you know what? You know, because they're from South Carolina, they're, they're polite, even though they are massive men. You know, they eventually said, oh, well, okay, okay, sir, you're not going to be convinced by this. I'm, we're just going to go. I'm like, see you later. Glad you guys were so polite. So, you know, you can't judge by looks, right? Right there. Good conversation. And so, yeah, that's what people have to do. They have to say things like that. And you, you look at this and you, you say, well, so yeah, I don't have to be saved. In order to be saved, I don't need to be baptized. And that means, and we're going to see this, that baptism is not part of the gospel. It is not the gospel, and it is not even part of the gospel. Paul says this, he distances baptism from the gospel explicitly here in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not, he did not send me to baptize, but to preach 
the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So yeah, he says baptism is not the gospel. It, it may point to the gospel, the righteousness of faith, but it itself is not the gospel at all. And that the reason why that is, is because there's no ritual. There's nothing, there's no ordinances. There's no laying of hands. There's no ceremony. There's no sacrifice in a cathedral, temple, or mosque, or whatever that can save a person. It is Jesus who saves. Salvation is not a series of cold, robotic rituals and ceremonies. That is not good news. That is not what Christianity is all about. It's not based on ritualism. It's based on Christ. And that makes Christianity profoundly different. If it were, you know, a ritualistic religion, just be like all the other religions, you know, but it's different in that it's the heart of it is a relationship with the living, infinite God of the universe. That's why it's good news. To have eternal life is not done through rituals. It is through knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. You cannot get there by doing procedures and practices. It's knowing God. It's knowing Christ. This is what John 17, 3 says. And this is eternal life. What's eternal life? That they know you. It's a relationship. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is the gospel. He is our peace. He is our hope. Not ordinances and commandments. There's no hope in those things. There's only hope in Jesus doing those things for you. This is what Ephesians 2, 14 through 15 says. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. A lot of hostility today, a lot of difficulty today. Jesus has broken down those things by the gospel, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace. Jesus is our hope. He is our peace. Not rituals and things that people think that they're getting from them. Not those things. There is no substitute in the Christian life, there's no substitute that you can have possibly than a relationship with God. You can't replace that with anything. And that means being a Christian this morning is not doing certain ceremonies, saying certain words in a prayer. No, it is not that. It is having God in your life. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to have Jesus in your life. Not some you know, distant deity that you do a few things to satisfy and whatever. That's not how it works. It's not like, oh, I can go to church. You know, this is how I thought, you know, you know, how I thought a lot as a teenager. Okay, you know, if I go to church maybe once a month, month, maybe I'll cut a deal with God here. And so God's not in any part of my life whatsoever. He's absent from any decision I make, from how I live my life. I, it's, it's completely godless if I just do certain ceremonies. And that's not how the Christian life is. God in Christ, wants to be Lord of your life, have a relationship with him, being a part of your life, not just some side project that you can put a few chips in and then say, okay, it's good, let's just live my life without reference to God. God wants to be a part of your life. That is a part of eternal life, is having a relationship with him. And if you'd want that this morning, you need to trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of your sins, and he will be with you and walk with you and be your friend even when everything else fails and all your friends fail you. That's what it means to be a Christian is knowing and having that perfect, unlosable relationship with Jesus. Though we are imperfect, he is perfect for us. 
and he is greater than all of our sin. He loves us even though we sin. Let's give God thanks and glory for that.